quote from Madiba or Nelson Mandela. And it's that famous line when he said, Unforgiveness is like drinking poison while expecting your enemy to die. Crazy, right? Because the only person that you're ever hurting is yourselves. And it's the same with unforgiveness. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to church. Aren't you glad that you're here this morning? Yes. Amen. Yes, amen. Now, today, we're going to be coming around the final installment of our series. I know, sad times. Because I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed the deep dive of looking into the nature and into the character of our God. Because it is important that we have a correct theology of who our God is, right? In fact, I remember one of my old lecturers in Bible college, he was a professor, doctor, doctor, because he had a couple of doctorates after his name. And I will never forget one of our very first lectures when he said, we do theology upon our knees. Because what we know of God is only that which he has chosen to reveal to us. And aren't you glad that God has revealed himself to us via his word, both the written word and the word made flesh, Jesus? Amen. And so, that said, the title of this message is simply, Who is God? Part 6. And if you have your Bibles with you, then please open up and come with me to the book of Exodus. And we're going to read from chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7. And it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head to the ground and worshipped. Hallelujah. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. Question. How many of you over the past few weeks have had it in the back of your mind, what is up with that ending? Anyone? Yeah. I mean, looking at the character of God, we have seen that he is merciful and gracious. And we're like, yes. He is slow to anger, okay. That he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, absolutely, that's our God. But then we come to this part and it says, and he will not clear the guilty. And he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. And we're like, Moses, you were doing so well. Why did you have to go and ruin it with that last line? Right? Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that it doesn't mean what it sounds like in the English. But the bad news 
is that we don't get to pick and choose the bits in the Bible that we like while discarding the rest. Because we believe in the full counsel of God, do we not? Otherwise, we will have for ourselves a pick-and-mix religion. And we may even run the risk of creating a God of our own imagining, which essentially is no God at all, but a figment of our imagination. It's what the scripture calls an idol, which loves the things that you love while hating the things that you hate. It's what Brennan Manning once described when he said, God created man in his own image and man repaid the favor. True? And so to repeat, we must build our theology of God from the scriptures and more specifically from the person of Jesus. Because it is only then that we are building upon solid ground and not sinking sand. And what's more is that the God of the scriptures is far more glorious and majestic and awesome than we could ever think or imagine. And that's no exaggeration. It really isn't. And so, that said, a quick and a final recap of what we know of God thus far. We have seen over the past few weeks... That God is Rahum Vachanun, that He is merciful and He is gracious. That He is Erek Apayam, or He is slow to anger. And that He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, or in Chesed and Emet. And so, building on that this morning, let us unpack somewhat the rest of verse 7. And let's take it line by line. Is that okay this morning? Yes. Great. Although you've got no choice in the matter, because I'm going there anyhow. (laughs) Verse 7, it starts off by saying, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And this word keeping, It could also be translated as God's, protects, or preserves. And the idea behind it is that God's steadfast love is guarded and protected and preserved for us by God himself. Wow. That God is watching over to ensure his love for us. And that is why we can sing with utter confidence that there is no power in hell and no scheme of man that can ever pluck us from his hand. Glory to Jesus. Now, not only does this God guard and preserve his love for us, but this God, He is also a forgiving God. And this word, forgiving or nasar, it appears at least 653 times before we ever get to Jesus. In other words, forgiveness, it isn't a New Testament concept, 
but it has been around for a while. It's not that the God of the Old Testament is this grumpy old granddad type figure while Jesus is a bit more chill. No. But as we have seen all throughout this this series that both the Father and the Son are both singing off the same hymn sheet as it were in that they are both forgiving. Amen. Amen. Now, what exactly... Have we been forgiven of? Well, Moses uses these three words. Namely, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And this trifecta in the Hebrew language is a kind of word pairing which encompasses the totality of brokenness. Iniquity, or avon. It's a catch-all term, and it refers to behavior that is crooked or bent. Transgression, or peshar, is more of a legal term, which describes the breakdown in a relationship or a betrayal. And then there's sin, or chatah, which essentially means to miss the mark and to fall short and fail, quite literally. Think of it in terms of the the archery. As the arrow is released, it misses the mark, misses the bullseye, it falls short, and it fails. All that to say that this trifecta of words are synonyms of one another. The point is that God forgives them all. That there is no sin outside of the remit of God that he cannot or will not forgive. Do you believe that this morning, church? Yeah. You see, we often like to rate sin by putting murder right up there among the unforgivable. But somebody walking off with something that doesn't quite belong to them is something quite less or a misdemeanor. However, both are as equally sinful in the sight of God. And yet his word tells us that Yahweh forgives them all. Praise God. Now, this language of iniquity, transgression and sin, it's all over the canon, it's all over the scripture. For instance, think of that well-known psalm, Psalm 51. That David pens shortly after his affair with Bathsheba. And he writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Did you catch it? The echo back to Exodus 34. What's David relying upon? What is he asking? He's relying upon the compassionate and the forgiving nature of Yahweh. You see, what we have to understand is that forgiveness, it is inbuilt and it is embedded within the nature and the character of God. That when we blow it 
or when we mess up something royally, God doesn't begrudgingly think, oh no, I've got to forgive you now. No. But rather, he is eager to forgive and to reconcile you back to himself because that's his heart. Isn't he glorious? Amen. Moving on, and we come to a but. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, this line could also be translated as at the same time he doesn't declare the guilty innocent or that he doesn't let the guilty off the hook. That's the general idea. That yes, God is merciful and gracious, absolutely. But just to clarify, God is also just and he will not clear the guilty. Now, we may shudder at the thought of God holding people to account. Because after all, it is 2023 and we're living in Harlow where the mantra is live and let live and to each their own, right? But we must understand that God is a God of justice and his justice is a good thing. Because his end goal isn't to destroy, but it is to redeem and to restore. Where one day we will live in a world where there is no more abuse, no more hatred, no more violence or wickedness or war, but a world that is set free from all its brokenness. How many of you want to live in a world like that? Amen. And the good news is that those who put their trust in Jesus will one day enter in to the new heavens and the new earth where everything will be made brand new. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. Now, you're probably thinking, but Rana, that's all good and well. But what about the bit that says visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and from the grandfathers to the grandchildren? What about that? Yep, it's there. However, elsewhere in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. And note that both of these verses are found in the Torah. And both Exodus and Deuteronomy are both written by the same author, Moses. And so he possibly cannot be contradicting himself here. There has to be more, right? And thankfully, there is. As John Mark tells us, that there are a couple of ways in which we can look at this text. Firstly, that the sins of the parents will naturally have consequences upon their children. For instance, if a parent gets arrested and goes to prison for selling drugs, then it's going to affect the children, right? Or when a family unit breaks down and the parents separate and split... 
the impact upon the children is huge because it means that the children will now grow up in not so much of a loving and a stable home, not to mention the psychological trauma of abandonment, rejection and insecurity, etc., etc. So that's just an example of how the sins of the parents affect the children. Another way of looking at this text is that God will punish sin in every generation. For instance, if our fathers worshipped um, idols, and if God punished them for the sin of idolatry, then do we really think that he will somehow excuse us for practicing the same? I think not. Because God is faithful. And that cuts both ways. In that he is faithful to maintain his love towards those who have put their trust in him, of course. But at the same time, he is faithful to give those who have rejected him their just reward. Because he doesn't chop and change like the wind, no matter how popular something becomes in our day and age. You see, regardless of what our culture tells us, what was sinful over 2,000 years ago and beyond is still sinful today. And the church doesn't have the right to edit God and to move with the times when it comes to certain issues. No. Because the issue has already been settled. Forever, O God, your word is settled in the heavens. Psalm 119. Amen. Amen. And so, because God is faithful, he will see to it that sins passed down from generation to generation will still come under his judgment. How are we all doing out there? Now, all of this, it leads us to the last line, which says, to the third and the fourth generation. Now, the word generation isn't found in the Hebrew. It's literally to the third and the fourth. However, scholars tell us that it can be there, but verse 7 needs to be symmetrical. As in, there needs to be symmetry between the first line and the final line of verse 7. For instance, if it reads, keeping steadfast love for thousands, then it ought to end with to the third and the fourth. But if it reads, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, then it ought to end with to the third and the fourth generation. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Don't worry if it doesn't. Essentially, it's about keeping it consistent. And so the ESV doesn't quite get this right here, but the CSB does. Anyhow, watch this. The phrase to the third and fourth generation, 
It's a quote that is taken directly from the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. And there it says this, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments in other words think of it as a set of scales with weights either end that at the one end there is God's justice to two three maybe four generations but then on the other end his mercy extends to not only two three or four but to a thousand generations in other words his mercy it far outweighs his justice upon that scale. And it's a visual of God's heart. That his anger, it lasts for a moment, but his mercy extends to a lifetime. Amen. Amen. Now, with that understanding, let us jump over to the book of Numbers, chapter 14, if you're taking notes. And for the sake of context, it's where Moses sends out the 12 spies to spy out the land. And after 40 days, they return. And 10 out of the 12 spies, they bring a negative report. And they say, the land is full of giants. And we seem like little grasshoppers. In other words, we cannot take it, Moses. The land is far too big and they're too big for us. To which Joshua and Caleb respond, in a word, nonsense. That because God is with us, we can take it. Amen? Amen. Come on. Lord, we pray for more Joshua and Caleb's spirits upon the church right now. However... The congregation, they side with the ten. And then they pick up stones ready to stone Moses and his faithful and to take them out. In other words, it gets real nasty real fast. But then from verse 10 onwards, we read. The glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long? Will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And if you know the backstory, then you will know that up to this point, leading Israel hasn't exactly been an easy ride for Moses. Far from it. Because Israel, they have grumbled constantly and they have tested Yahweh. And now they are ready to stone him to death. And if I were Moses, I'd be like, finally God, thank you. Do away with this ungrateful brunch and start afresh with yours truly. Hashtag, just say. But that's 
not what Moses says. Instead, he says from verse 15 onwards, Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he killed them in the wilderness. And then Moses goes on to cite Exodus 34. What's he doing? He's appealing to God's name and reputation. God, think about your name. That if you destroy them, the people at large will misunderstand you and they will not know that you are this merciful and this gracious God who is slow to anger. Moses prays, and that's why we pray, because God responds and he answers. And listen to verse 20. Onwards it says, Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses, but, and this is a brutal but, truly as I live, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Wow. Verse 31. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years, a year year for each day they were out, and they shall suffer for your faithlessness. Here's the point. God is compassionate. He is merciful and he is forgiving. But sin, on the other hand, is not. It has consequences. And it is cruel and it is unforgiving. It's the contrast of God. It's like someone once said that sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Now, even though the consequences of sin are dire and not to be trifled with, however, we also find this stunning theme throughout the canon of Scripture of forgiveness. And this word forgiveness or nasar, it literally means to lift up and to carry and to take away. I mean, talk about a signpost pointing towards our Lord. Amen. Because that's exactly what Jesus does. In that he lifts our heavy burden of sin and he carries it away to the cross. Think of John in John 1, 29, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Glory. Now, staying in the New Testament, 
And our Lord teaches us how to live out the truth of forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, rabbis back in the day, they would say, offer forgiveness three times and then after that, you're off the hook. But Peter, wanting to score a few brownie points here, he goes above and beyond that number. He says, as many as seven times, because seven, as you know, is the Jewish number of completion. But note what our Lord says. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but what? Seventy times seven, or 490 times. And that doesn't mean to say that on the 491st time that you no longer have to forgive. No. Because this number is its hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. The point is do not stop forgiving. Amen. Amen. And then our Lord goes on to share this parable of the unforgiving servant. And I'm sure you know it all well. It's where the master forgives his servant a debt that he could never, ever repay. It's something like bazillions, which I don't even know what that looks like. And then this forgiven servant, he goes off and he comes across a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii, which is approximately three to four months worth of wages, which is doable. It can be repaid over time, right? But the forgiven servant, oh dear, <laughs> bless him. But the forgiven servant, he refuses to cancel the debt and he takes his fellow servant and he puts him in prison. Word gets back to the master and he is outraged and he says, I cancelled your debt, a debt that you could never ever repay so shouldn't you have cancelled the debt of your fellow man and so the master then delivers the unforgiving servant to the jailer until he pays his debt and then Jesus ends this parable with this so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you If you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. You see, forgiveness, it isn't a side issue to our Lord. But it is central to the gospel. Because God holds nothing against us. He wipes the slate clean Because on that scale of God's justice and his mercy, he leans more towards mercy. And he calls us to do the same. In fact, looking at our whole passage in Exodus 34, in its entirety, we see that it not only describes who God is, a good and loving God, but it also instructs us on how we ought to live and be. Because if we want to become more and more like Yahweh and Yeshua, 
And we need to take a leaf out of their book, as it were. Because both God and his Christ, they are merciful and they are gracious. Therefore, we ought to be also. They are slow to anger. Therefore, we ought to be also. They abound in steadfast love and and, uh, faithfulness. And they are forgiving. Therefore, you've guessed it. We ought to be also. Amen. Amen. Now, you've heard of that saying, hurting people hurt people, right? On the flip, forgiven people forgive people. And that's what we're called to do. And what's more is that forgiven people are free After serving 27 years of hard time in prison, Nelson Mandela, upon release, he said, when I walked out of that prison gate, I had to forgive my perpetrators because had I not, though I would have been free from a physical prison, yet I would have been incarcerated within a mental prison. True. In other words, when Mandela walked out of jail, he was truly free, both physically and mentally. And that's what Jesus comes to do for us. To set the captives free. Amen. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. But if you have never received true peace and true joy, then it could be because there's a blockage between you and the great peace giver. And the only way to clear this blockage is to simply come to him and to say, Lord Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? And his word assures us that he will. That if we confess with our mouth and we believe in him, not only will we be saved, but we will be forgiven of all. That whole trifecta of big sins, little sins, the whole shebang. And if you would like to speak to somebody about that, then please grab one of us after the service and we'd love to chat with you some more on that. Or if you're here this morning... And perhaps you're harboring a past hurt or a wound that's been affecting you. Then can I just lovingly say that it is time to cut it loose. To lay it at his feet and to be free. Because that's what he come to do. We don't have to be carrying around a big sack of guilt, shame, or whatever it is. You fill in the blank. But Jesus sets us free. And his heart towards us is one of reconciliation to bring us back into the fold of the Father's heart that we may know him. You see, there is one who doesn't want you to be there. There's one who wants you to retain and hold on to that big bag of bricks of guilt or shame, whatever it is. And that's the enemy of your soul. That's the Satan, the devil. 
But Jesus says, I've come to give you life, and life in its abundance. And when we taste of his goodness and his greatness, that we have been forgiven, those who have been forgiven much, love much as well. And that's his heart for you. And as we surrender our all to him, let us take his lead and let us become more and more like our rabbi, forgiving, compassionate, merciful, and loving. Because that's who God is. That he is merciful and he is gracious. He is slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he calls us to be likewise. Be holy as I am holy. Be separated and be like me. And we become that which we behold. And we're all being formed in one way or another. It all depends on what is forming us. It's either Netflix, the Netflix generation, or it's Jesus. Not to say that the two are diametrically opposed to one another, but it, you get what I mean. If you're binge-watching series, that's, it's forming us, right? But the more time we are spending with him, we're being formed and made into the image of the Christ, who is glorious. He is awesome. Praise God. Shall we pray? Hmm. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, it it doesn't matter how many times we say those words, God. It will never be enough for what you have done for us, God. Father, often we say these words and they just roll off of our tongue without, Father, us even engaging our brains or our hearts, Lord God, with actually what are we actually saying and to whom are we speaking? But precious Jesus, we want to thank you that you condescended. You didn't have to. You could have remained in the luxury of glory, Father. But Lord, you exchanged your heavenly throne for a wooden cross, God. And you came, Lord, because there was a blockage between us, Father. And we thank you, Jesus, that, God, that you have forgiven us, Lord. And that's why your word says, blessed are the man, is the man or the woman whose sins are forgiven. And we thank you, Jesus, that, Lord, you don't hold it up against us, Lord, ready to bash us the next time we get it wrong. But, Father, as far as the east is to the west, Lord, you separate and remove our sins and our transgressions. And you bring us closer to your fold. You give us a seat at your table and our cup overflows. So, Father, we pray. God, help us in our times of need, Lord, when, Father, we feel wounded or rejected or abandoned or whatever it may be. That, God, that at that point, Lord, we will just remember what you have done And God, we will see that you, Father, you forgave right from the cross, Lord. It it was your final words. Help us, Father, to be like you and not to carry any offense, Lord, within us and not to give offense, but, Father, to love you and to serve you and to allow your light to shine in us and through us that the world may see, Father, Lord, your people as the, the living Bible that they would then go and read. So, Father, help us to reflect you. 
and cause us to become more like you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.